Hey there, I'm Dana, a registered dietitian and registered dietitian exam tutor. And this is my podcast where we go over all of the questions that have been posted to my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Study Group with Dana over the past week. And we not only chat about the answers, but why are they the answers as well as answer any questions that students have posted on the page throughout the week. This is a weekly podcast, so be sure to tune in each week for new questions. And of course, I would love to see any of you guys at the live version of this on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. So the first question we have this week is a question from Sarah and she was saying what are common diuretics that we should know by name for the exam? And this is a great question because if we are just being like Lasix, 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 we're not necessarily going to be able to answer the question. So definitely Lasix is one we get asked about a lot but also spirolactone is another one we see. We see that used a lot too with our patients with ascites as well. Um, so definitely you do want to know kind of the generic names and then also kind of the less common names too. Also, of course, with our diuretics, knowing the difference between potassium sparing and non-potassium sparing, right? Our loop diuretics are going to be non-potassium sparing, which means that we're gonna have high potassium losses. So often these patients, we do need to supplement them with additional potassium if their potassium is running low. Next up, we have a math question from Al. So definitely, if you have your calculator nearby, grab it. If you have a little piece of scrap paper, that's really the best way to kind of do the math practice questions in this class, because it is a little bit hard to kind of do the audio. So this is a question from Al. Looks like it's off pocket prep, she says, I'm not able to get the answer using either of the break-even equations. I feel like we've asked this question before. And so definitely when we're thinking about break-even, definitely a popular topic, always happy to talk about it. This is covered in my equations part one lecture if you're looking for a recorded class. So it says ABC Bread Company wants to enter the gluten-free bread market. The fixed cost of manufacturing the product is going to be $20,000. And then our variable cost per unit is going to be $0.60. Cents. And then they say they're expecting to sell 800, 800 loaves of our bread. So what we're going to be thinking about here is we're having to kind of do algebra, right? So when we're reading this question, we're like, okay, perfect, right? Even we're thinking about is it in break even in units sold or is it going to be in break even in our sales volume? So the difference is when we're talking about break even in units sold, we're saying I need to sell 8,000 loaves of bread at this price. So this question is break even in units sold. First, when I'm thinking about break even in sales volume, we're thinking about okay, well, I need to sell 10,000 loaves of bread. So if you're just trying to kind of plug in this question to your equation, right? And when we're thinking about our equation for break even in units sold, it's gonna be our fixed cost over our selling price minus our variable cost. And right, we're like, well, I can't, I can't possibly solve for that. I don't have the selling price, but this is, forgetting that you already have the amount of units sold. 
So this is an algebra equation, right? You're like, oh, great, Dana, I love algebra. I know you guys do. So instead of, you know, having our fixed cost and our selling price and our variable price, we have our units sold. So your math should have our 8,000, right, which is our units sold, they already told us this, is equal to $20,000, right, over X, right, we don't know the selling price, minus 60 cents, which is our variable cost. And when we do that, that's how we're getting the $3.10. So that's why, too, with your equations, you need to know about them as terms, as definitions, not just knowing about them as what is the equation. Memorizing the equation is not going to be very helpful for you to kind of navigate different things. So the next one, we have another math question. This one's definitely more math heavy, so stay on for the ride. So this is a question from me. So we had a student who was saying, you know, would it be possible to do a prime cost method? I, you know, I see all of these around, but I only see factor pricing. And this is exactly how I want you guys to use the Facebook page and recognizing like, wow, I know there's another topic, but I can't see a practice question on it. I'm always happy to put together a practice question on any topic. Just let me know. You guys can always email me at danajfryernutrition at gmail.com if you have a question request or also post it on the page to make sure it gets answered. So here's the question. I said, find my selling price using prime pricing method. The raw food cost for one bread loaf is gonna be 34 cents. Labor cost is $15 per hour. Each bread loaf takes 23 minutes of labor to make and the bakery wants to have a markup factor of 1.7. And so when we're thinking about prime pricing method, how I like to think about it is like prime, bing, it's the first thing I think of, of, you know, add up my cost, multiply it times my markup factor. And, you know, then we're getting our prime cost. So I already have my raw food cost, which is 34 cents. Perfect. Hold that there. So the next thing I need to think about is what is my labor cost? And the number one mistake I see people make is they go, oh, well, labor cost is $15 right? Perfect. But I only take 23 minutes to make a loaf of bread. So I'm not going to pay someone the full $15. So what I want to think about is how much is it going to cost me to pay someone 23 minutes? So I would recommend taking your rate, your dollars per hour, $15 per hour, and then divide that by 60 to find our dollars per minute, which is 24 cents. So every minute I'm paying someone 24 cents. So if I do, sorry, 25 cents. So if I do 25 cents times my 23 minutes per loaf, then what I'm having there, right? So I took my $15 divided by 60 and I get my 25 cents. So then I take my 25 cents and I multiply that times my 23 minutes. And that's telling me that I have to pay $5.75 in labor costs. So I add the labor costs, $5.75, plus $0.34, cents, and it's telling me my total cost is $6.09. And then I do that times my markup factor of 1.7, and that's telling me that I'm going to be getting a cost of $10.35. $10 so that's our prime price and definitely if this is a trouble area for you definitely head to the Facebook page and 
search selling price, you'll get my study guide that's posted on the Facebook page. So, so next up, we have a question from Lori, and she says, what is the best initial recommendations for a patient diagnosed with acute pancreatitis who will be starting our enteral nutrition? So this is a great question. So when we're thinking about pancreatitis, right, if they have mild pancreatitis, that's when we can do the one to three days NPO, dextrose containing IV fluids, clear liquids, low-fat back to regular diet. When you have a patient who has moderate to severe pancreatitis, you might be needing to start them on enteral nutrition. And so the type of enteral nutrition that would be the best tolerated would be a post-pyloric tube. And again, think of our anatomy. If we do post-pyloric, we're bypassing where the, the pancreas and the pancreatic duct is coming and connecting with the duodenum, so we're not stimulating it. We're kind of sneaking past the pancreas and to do an element of formula because in case we're having any sort of pancreatic insufficiency, the elemental formula would be the easiest to get. So the kind of gold star answer is to do post-pyloric elemental. Now, for any of those of you guys working in clinical, you might not do this, and there's a few reasons why. So first reason is post-pyloric access is difficult to get, um, especially at the bedside. They might have to go to interventional radiology to get it down, or a lot of hospitals have a device. It's called a Cortrax, which is really, really cool if you don't know what it is. Um, definitely Google it. I'll probably post a video to the Facebook page too. But it's like, you know, this special tube, and so you can kind of track it as you're inserting it. So it will tell you when it's in the stomach and also when it's post-pyloric. It's really cool. I'll post a video to the Facebook page. We can all enjoy it. Um, but, so that's the first thing of thinking that it's hard to get post-pyloric access, and then elemental formulas are expensive. So in my career, I've never done a post-pyloric elemental tube feed situation for someone with pancreatitis. Oftentimes, if they need enteral, we'll kind of start with gastric and kind of see how they tolerate. But kind of the gold standard would be that elemental through a nasal jejunal, a nasal jejunal tube, um, too. So next up, we have a question from Angie, and she says, I know we've talked about this, and again, always happy to talk about the topic again. You know, knowing what you guys want to talk about is super helpful to guide the class. Um, so she said, I struggle with min and max versus parse stock on the situational questions. Are there keywords to look for that help you kind of figure out what this is. And so when we're thinking about min and max, so min and max is saying that I always want to have at least this amount, which is very similar to my par stock, but the difference is I won't go over a certain amount. So I, when I give an example of min and max, I think about wine at my house, right? I always like to have at least one bottle of wine, right? What if I have a guest? I always want to have one bottle of wine, but when I get more than three bottles of wine, I run out of space. So my min would be one and my max would be three. So I would never want to go more than three. I would never want to go less than one. So it's similar to par stock where if I'm at the store I'm gonna and I'm buying wine, I'm like, how many bottles do I have at home? And if I had one bottle, I'd be like, perfect. If I had two bottles, I'd say perfect. If I had three bottles, I'd say perfect. If I had none, I'd buy one. If I had three, I wouldn't buy anymore. And when we're thinking about par, it's very similar except I just have one data point and I'm okay to go over it, right? So like recently, I've been really obsessed with this Spindrift um, 
seltzer water, especially the lime raspberry. If you need a seltzer water, definitely grab it. Um, but, so I always like to have some in the house. So my minimum is having like at least six at the house before I'm like, we gotta go to the store, I gotta buy more. But if my boyfriend comes home with like six cases, right? I'm like, oh, perfect, this is great. I love Spindrift. So with Par, I'm saying, I'm still when I go to the store, I'm saying, okay, do I have at least six? Okay, then I don't need to necessarily buy right now. But if I have six, right, which is my par, like the minimum amount I have, I can buy way over it if I want. First with my min and max, right, that's my wine where I'm saying one to three, not going to go over it. With my seltzer water, I'm saying minimum six, but I can go over it too. So you want to watch when you're thinking about the situational questions, kind of ask watch what they're asking. Are they telling you more about the wine situation or are they asking you about the seltzer water situation? Um, two. Okay, next up, we have another question. This one's saying, which of the following patterns would you most expect to see in advanced liver disease? And so the answer to this one, so it's asking you about like triglycerides, albumin, as well as an ALT. So triglycerides trip everyone up. So what we want to think about with triglycerides is you want to think how they're getting into the body, right? So for dinner, I had some great guacamole, right? But to get the guacamole, well, now that's going to raise my triglycerides, but let's pretend I had nachos. That's much better. So if I had nachos for dinner, right, to get that nice cheese into my blood, you know, in the form of triglycerides, I need two things. I need pancreatic enzymes, my lipase, and then I also need bile. So if I don't have either of those things, I'm not going to see like a rise in my triglycerides. And oftentimes I'm going to see lower triglycerides because I just can't get the fat I'm eating into my blood. And so that's what we're thinking about here. Someone who has advanced liver disease, we need to recognize that and go cirrhosis. So cirrhosis, I'm likely going to have a bile insufficiency. So I'm not going to have a high triglycerides if I have really advanced disease. My albumin, right, we wanna think about reasons albumin could be low, our top four. Inflammation, liver disease. Remember, albumin's made in the liver, so factory's broken, no albumin. Volume overload, right, because if I'm volume overloaded, my albumin's kinda all spread out. And then the fourth one is, could just be malnutrition. Albumin's a protein, no protein, no albumin. But in this case, right, if they're having advanced, right, we know they could have ascites. And then our liver function tests, right, our ALT, our AST, and our ALT-FOS are going to be high because those should live in the liver cells. And when the liver is damaged, they're broken open. So that's what we're kind of thinking of there. So the answer to this one would be low triglycerides, low albumin, high ALK-FOS. Great question. And again, you want to kind of be thinking about thinking about um, our fat metabolism, our fat metabolism too. So next one, we got a question from a student. She says, Inman says the lowest possible holding temperature for food is 140. And the students are, can you actually hold food um, at 140? And so something we want to think about too is with Inman, remember, it's a reference, it's not a Bible. So there's going to be some things too with, you know, where it's not necessarily always the most correct. And this question too is kind of saying, you know, which one would be like 
the last, last ideal option. So we know kind of when we're cooking our food right, one of our lowest cook-to temperatures is going to be 145 with things like our pork or our fish. But this is this question is kind of saying like a tray, like a tray line of like the food is there. At what point do I need to kind of recook it? So you're thinking that the food temp has gone down a little bit. So the 140 right would kind of be the last kind of point where you're like, okay, we got to pull it off and reheat it. So it's not necessarily saying like that I want to be holding it here or this is the temperature that it should be at, but more kind of thinking like what's the lowest acceptable before you're kind of pulling it off off the line, um, off the line too. Um, next one we have on here, we're thinking about, a question was asking, Healthy People 2020 is presented by which branch of the government? And recently I've been getting a lot of my one-on-one students' government agency questions. And so the answers here are going to be FDA, CDC, DHHS, USDA, or both C&D. And so what we're, the key thing we want to be thinking about with our government agencies is you want to kind of think about what's the umbrella term and kind of what's the best, what's kind of the best answer to. So when we're thinking about this one, this is under C, D, H, H, S, because that's the Department of Health and Human Services. And that's going to cover FDA as well as the CDC. So you definitely want to know with our government agencies what agencies are under which, um, kind of which overarching ones too, because also think about like the FSIS is underneath the USDA. So you want to always go with the most specific one, but if you don't see the most specific one, you can also kind of back out a little bit and also go with kind of the overall government agency as well. And with the government agencies, one of the best things you can definitely do is make a study guide chart. Uh, but if this is a trouble area for you, definitely check out my nutrition labels and government agencies class that's available. Thanks for tuning in for this week's practice question review. Don't forget that we are doing these live on my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Tutoring with Dana RD, every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and I would love to have you join live. You can also head to my website, danajfnutrition.com, to find out about the latest classes as well as study tips and services. Thanks for tuning in.